Welcome back to Hotel Bar Sessions, episode 14. Today's topic, shame. Okay, welcome back everybody to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers get together as if they were sitting down at the hotel bar after a long day of philosophy conference papers. My name is Lee Johnson, and I'm joined by my co-hosts. I'm Shannon Musset. And I'm Ammon Allred. Good to see you guys. Before we jump into today's topic, I first want to get your drink orders and the paper session that you just came out of. So, Ammon, why don't you go first? So, I would like to have, I think, the second least expensive red wine on this menu. And I really, really hope it's a lovely Malbec, because that's what I'm in the mood for, but I'm sticking to my guns. (laughs) And I just got out of a session called On Being One, On Being Two, Naomi and Jackie Turn a Year Old. That's right, listeners. I talk about the babies all the time, and they just had their one-year-old birthday. They're so cute. Congratulations, (laughs) babies. (laughs) Well, I'm ashamed. (laughs) See what I did there? To order the same drink. I'm going to get my white wine spritzer, my huge. And I just got out of a really interesting talk, something that I don't usually go to, and it was called Assessing the Assessor. Why assessment culture should be renamed ass cement culture because it's just like a giant cement ass sitting on all of us. This must be the end of the academic year. I think it is. This is an extremely long paper title. (laughs) It was an extremely heavy paper. Well, I'm also going to have my usual Fireball and Diet Coke. And I got out of a paper entitled Professional Philosophy and the Gig Economy. No, wait a minute. It was actually titled Professional Philosophy as the Gig Economy. (laughs) (laughs) Shannon gave us a little hint there, but today we're going to be talking about shame. And so I'm very happy to be sitting down with the two most shameless people that I know to talk about this really complicated topic. I think we should probably start right at the beginning and try to figure out what it is that we mean when we talk about shame. So anybody want to give us a definition to start with? That's kind of hard to do because there are all these different places in the history of philosophy that people talk about shame. And then there's a lot of contemporary philosophy critiquing it from various standpoints. And so I would say that one of the first appearances of a discussion of shame is in chapter four, book nine of Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. And Aquinas actually takes this on as well. He says something really interesting. He says, shame is a feeling It's a physical feeling. He talks about the change of the body in it. But what's really interesting is he says that it's only appropriate for young people to feel shame. That by the time you get to be an adult, if you're feeling shame, that means you have not been properly habituated into virtue. So I thought that was really fascinating, this idea that shame is something that we use to educate children into how to be social, but that it's not supposed to be something that carries forward into adulthood. There's been a failure of education if you feel shame as an adult. And, you know, I I won't talk about Freud yet because I know how much y'all love me talking about Freud, but I think there is also something in Freud that shame is what we educate into children in order to make them able to function in civilization. I, I don't remember this passage in Aristotle, but let me make sure I get this clear. I mean, obviously, the adult who feels shame has failed in his or her cultivation of virtues at some right, point. Right. That seems obvious. But is Aristotle saying that shame will not be effective on an adult? Yeah. And that if you feel shame, it's because there's been a failure in education. He calls it a fear of disrepute. Well, that's interesting. I mean, Socrates in the Crito 
there's a discussion of the fear of disrepute and Socrates' rejection of it. But in both Plato and Aristotle, there's a lot of discussion of the ways in which failure of education can happen to adults. Mm-hmm. So it would be weird to think that something not necessarily being a feature of the properly educated person is sufficient to think it wouldn't be a feature of adults generally. I know. It's really weird, right? I, I started here because it's such an odd idea, but I, I, I think it's because shame is necessary in the development of the virtue of moderation or temperance. Okay. And with every other virtue... If you are an adult and you don't have that virtue, your habituation has failed and uh-huh. good luck to you. You're not going to change. I mean, I think that's pretty clear. That's the idea. It's that if you're feeling shame, that means you're not properly habituated into the virtue of moderation. You so, okay, are an so, intemperate person. So just to make sure I'm understanding, and I want to come back to this idea of kids, but Aristotle is claiming then that shame is primarily a feeling that has a propedeutic value. Yes, and that's right. that... It's properly felt there, and if it's felt elsewhere, it's improper. Right. Okay. Which is really interesting when you think about it, because I think from a more contemporary perspective, we would be like the worst thing you can do, maybe some people might say, the worst thing you can do is to make children feel shame, that that's actually harmful to them. And I think Aristotle's saying, no, this is actually necessary, otherwise they're going to grow up and be vicious. They're not going to be virtuous members of society. That's really interesting. Can we also distinguish shame from adjacent concepts? Mm -hmm. So, for example, guilt. Yeah. Do shame and guilt overlap? Are they the same in some contexts? Are they different? Well, I mean, since you're going to ask, (laughs) since since you're going to ask, Freud does make a distinction between shame and guilt. And I think along the same lines of Nietzsche, right, that guilt is this feeling that I need to be punished, Mm -hmm. that I've done something wrong and I desire punishment. And that's not what shame is. Shame isn't a desire for punishment because we feel like we have done something wrong. That seems true to me that shame is not a desire for punishment or even a recognition that punishment is deserved, Mm -hmm. but that what shame is, is the failure to attain some ideal. And whether or not that ideal is your own ideal or a social or a cultural right. or political ideal, that doesn't seem to make that much of a difference to me or it doesn't make that much of a difference in the definition. But this is where, just sort of going back to that claim by Aristotle, this is where maybe I might be inclined to disagree because it seems to me that if you're an adult and you feel shame, that that is evidence of at least some proper moral education. That really, it's the person who feels no shame, who cannot be made to feel shame. That is the person who I would recognize as someone who is maybe beyond recoverable as a moral agent. And if you think of another person that that you and I love very much, Lee, Jean-Paul Sartre, and Sartre's discussion of pride and shame as the two primary affects that make us the thing that we are, the object that we are in the appearance of the other. And so the famous keyhole example really illustrates what you're talking about, because presumably it's not a child looking through the keyhole and spying on their partner and what they're doing behind closed doors. It's an adult. And the whole idea there is somebody comes around the corner, you are completely not a self, not an ego, not an identity, which I think is critical in what we're talking about with shame. It has something to do with our identity. And then somebody sees me doing something that I shouldn't be doing, and I know I shouldn't be doing because I've been properly educated that you don't spy on people, and suddenly I become an object. 
I am a shameful object. I have to own my identity because I've been busted doing something that I know I shouldn't be doing. I mean, on the one hand, it makes us an ego and it makes us a thing and that makes us feel like our freedom is fleeing from us. But it's also educative because I feel shame that I shouldn't be doing this. And ideally, then I won't do it anymore because someone saw me doing something shameful. And so it's actually, as opposed to a failure of my childhood education, it's constitutive of what it means to learn continuously how to behave ethically in the world. So that raises another one of the concepts that I wanted to think about distinguishing shame from. Does it relate in some way to the concepts of good and bad faith? Do you feel ashamed because you're in bad faith or is feeling ashamed a feature of somebody who is in good faith and is trying to evaluate their actions in line with their sense of themselves. I know that Sartre says that when I feel shame, it's a confession. And then he, he says, later, I'm going to use bad faith to hide it from myself. <laughs> the shame is the confession that I am the object that the other has made me into being by the look. Mm-hmm. And later, I'll try to hide from that in bad faith. But I don't think that the moment of feeling shame is bad faith. I think it's just the moment where I have to be like, oh, I am this shameful being that is busted for doing something. So the dynamics of good and bad faith are going to come into how one responds to shame. I think so, yeah. Okay. I think it's also important to note that I don't have to get busted either. It's not that someone actually has to see me acting like a peeping Tom. Right. It's just that someone could see me, and therefore I can see myself as someone who was upholding this ideal, would see me. That's right. So shame is not something that necessarily involves another being shaming me, but I take the role of someone outside of myself looking at myself as someone who's failed an ideal. So we all spend a lot of time in the wonderful city of Philadelphia, the most shameless city on the planet. No, that's not where I was <laughs> no, going. that's <laughs> Fair. <laughs> this reminds me of, in the Philadelphia Museum of Art, they have a great Duchamp collection. And one of Duchamp's masterpieces is there, the piece Etant Donnée. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this piece. Yes. Yeah, all right. So I'm sure I would if I... So I'll remind you of it. Oh, is it the one with a woman and you can barely kind of see her legs and you're looking through this weird, yes. Yeah, exactly. And and I think that Duchamp designed it for that space. And I've taken students there and I've warned them about this in advance. So a very brief thumbnail of the piece is you walk up and you seem to be in a corner of the museum. It does not even seem like an exhibit. And you walk up to this wooden door and there's a hole in it. So there's a peeping Tom, as Jean-Paul Sartre describes. And you come up to it and you look in and you start to see the outlines of what seems to be the naked body of a corpse. So the body seems to be dead, and it's naked. I can't remember how much one sees of it, but to a certain degree, that's beside the point. And it's in this bizarrely, like, kitschy background. The tableau is very kitschy. And I've taken students to, to see this, and I will tell them what it is. And I will say to them, as soon as you look at this, you are going to be ashamed of yourself. And they all laugh at me. And then you can see them as soon as they look in, They all look to one side and then the other side. And that's exactly, I think, that phenomenon that you're describing. Yeah, that's good. That's so good. Whether or not someone's looking at you, the second that you see this voyeuristic, possibly criminal, and you're coming upon this, but the second you see it, you feel implicated. Yeah, I think another really great artistic representation of that exact thing is that final scene in the very first episode of 
the Black Mirror series, National Anthem, which is entirely about shame, which is entirely about can you manipulate people with shame. But then what happens is that we get this sort of slow pan of the crowd all realizing that they have failed an ideal by becoming voyeurs to this theater of shame. And, you know, this idea that shame can be used to manipulate other human beings. But like, I'm thinking of the end of the Black Mirror episode, and I'm thinking of the Duchamp installation. And they're both very good at inducing the feeling, the affect of shame. But do we learn something from that? Or is it just the experience of shame being induced that we're like, oh yeah, that's a thing. Like, do I then say maybe I shouldn't be so voyeuristic? What am I supposed to take away from that? Or is it just purely about the experience of inducing a shameful affect? I think this is a really interesting question, whether or not shame is always productive or educational. I know that there are some evolutionary psychologists that like to draw this comparison between shame and disgust, basically by saying this affect that we have of disgust was an evolutionary attribute that we developed so that we wouldn't eat shit that would kill us. And that shame is an evolutionary affect that we've developed in order to keep social hierarchies in order or other moral codes or things like that. I'm not inclined to believe that, but it does force this question, is shame always useful? Or is it ever, I mean, I guess it is useful. It is absolutely useful in keeping hierarchies is it intact. That? Well, I mean, it definitely well, is it's useful. Just, yeah, useful in keeping hierarchies. Yeah, hierarchies and it is useful in keeping people in their places, whether those places are places they should be kept or whether that's just useful for the machinations of civilization is another question. But it is very useful as an affect, I think. So, okay, so shame is what helps us to stay in our lanes. Yeah. To use the awful contemporary idiot. Yeah, as I mean, as is disgust and, and as is morality. I mean, those are, of course, the three things that Freud talks about. But that's precisely what civilization is built upon. Disgust, shame, and morality. And that keeps people, as you say... In their lanes. But why not punish? What would be the reason to choose shame over punishment? Because I guess the, the individuals taking the work on themselves, yeah, right? Exactly. So it's, it's, a, it's right. a much more effective, streamlined way of doing it. I was reading Anne Murphy's Violence in the Philosophical Imaginary, and she had this really great line where she was talking about philosophical violence and its relationship to shame. And she says that all these, the different ways of talking about shame highlights a kind of effective bind. And that this is just a quote from her, whereby one feels both a strong desire to flee and the concomitant sense of being riveted to the self, which is a Levinasian term. And I think that plays off of this Sartrean idea, but you can kind of see the energy expended by the individual who feels shame. I want to run away, but I feel riveted to myself. And that's that's such a good method of control because yeah. it, it just occupies all the energy of the person feeling it. Yeah, and in that sense, it really would be a mode of what Foucault would call subjectification. Yeah. I guess I'm still not seeing, though, how this distinguishes shame. I I get the point about punishment to a certain degree, but one of the points that Nietzsche makes about guilt is that guilt is when I internalize the work of punishment. Mm -hmm. Now, I I see how the way you're describing shame here, and especially this idea of riveting me to myself even when I want to flee, is affectively different than that. But it seems to be that in both cases that there's this judgment about oneself That involves sort of an internalization of norms that it's socially desirable for me to have. 
and me accepting my responsibility for my violation of those norms. I do think that at least in the genealogy, when Nietzsche talks about guilt, that it is interchangeable with shame. Okay. I don't see a real conceptual distinction between. I don't actually know what the German word that he uses. And I mean, for, for guilt is schuld, right? Which is important because it's the word for debt. I don't know shame. I've already gotten my, my French in trouble. I would assume that he would use scheu. I don't remember him talking very much about shame in the genealogy. Yeah. Does he? No, he doesn't. But right. what I'm saying is, is that I think that what he's describing is indistinguishable from the way we've been talking about shame. Okay. I, I think be- there are other ways to talk about the affect of guilt other than the way that Nietzsche does. But I think specifically in the genealogy of morals, when he's talking about guilt, it's very close to what we're talking about when we talk about shame. I'm totally down with that. But I think at at least at the beginning when I was trying to think through this, I was saying that guilt is more this sort of internalized need for punishment and desire for punishment. And I think that that's what Nietzsche is talking about in the genealogy of morals, that we just internalize this and punish ourselves because we can't express our instincts. But that shame is something a little bit different than that. And maybe for Nietzsche, that doesn't really matter, that shame and guilt are both just a need for punishment because he doesn't really touch upon shame. But I do feel like shame is not the same thing as an internalized need for punishment, of self-punishment. What I'm trying to say is that I do think that when Nietzsche is talking about guilt in the genealogy, that he is describing it in a way that is consonant with what we're describing right now as shame. And that that is how it gets so inextricably connected to resentment. And I think there are other ways to talk about the affect of guilt. So for example, I could borrow $10 from you and not pay it back and feel guilty about paying it back. What I actually feel is the fact that I haven't paid you back needs to be done, right? Like Mm -hmm. I need to be punished in the sense that I need Mm -hmm. to give that money back to you. That doesn't have the same connection to the deep sense of resentment that Nietzsche is talking about. So I think when Nietzsche is talking about internalizing guilt, that he's talking about it in this very shameful way, right? So it's not just that I feel like I need to be punished, but that I feel like my whole being is a being of which I should be ashamed. I think, Mm -hmm. I mean, I think one crucial way to think about it is that they're, they're, they're probably not identical techniques. But I think that they're both closely related techniques of subjectification through uh, violation of norms. And so the affect might be different, but in both cases, there are ways in which norms are enforced, not through some sort of external mechanism, but by making the subject responsible for what they've done. Hey everyone, we love to hear from you in the comments on our Hotel Bar Sessions Facebook page. And if you're on Twitter, you can follow the Hotel Bar Sessions podcast at Hotel Bar Podcast. You can also follow the HBS hosts on Twitter. I'm at Lovely Blueness, Ammon is at IdeasManPhD, and Lee is at Dr. Lee M. Johnson. And don't forget to like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. (laughs) 
I was hoping that maybe we could just talk a little bit about shameless people, people who have no shame, who appear to feel no shame. I actually asked Ammon before we started this, who's the most shameless person that we could imagine to invite <laughs> on to talk with us in this episode? And of course, the first person that came to mind to me was Donald Trump. I mean, Trump. he seems like the model of a completely shameless person. And obviously, in our society, we consider people like this, people who appear immune to shame, to be pathological, to be sociopaths. But one of the things that's so fascinating about Trump is that we might think this person is a sociopath because he is completely impervious to shame. But many people look up to him and admire his shamelessness and think that that is an ideal form of human being because he is impervious to shame. So from what our perspective might be some kind of pathology or dangerous person is from another perspective, somebody's hero. I think that Trump is a hero to many people, but I don't think for that reason. I think for so that I reason. Think that I do. I, I agree with Shannon. I, well, I think say, for that reason, yeah. Well, okay. let me make my case. Sure. Okay. So I think that there are people for whom Trump is a hero who recognize things that he does that they would be ashamed of and that they probably would think people close to them ought to be ashamed of. But what they like about Trump is that Trump breaks the rules. They don't like that he doesn't feel shame for paying off a prostitute to cover it up. What they like about him is that he's an outsider and that he's not going to be controlled by the shame of political correctness. And yeah. that's a different thing. I don't think that if they really thought he was shameless... I think that those that, are, that, that I think that those are related. And I think that the way they're related is through, you know, there's lots of discussions of troll politics. And I think that not being owned... I mean... I've got a whole set of problems with the liberals, which we'll discuss in our next episode. <laughs> but, but I think this idea of not being controlled by the liberals, the way in which that gets instantiated, it, it fits into this idea of, you know, wokeness, right? There's all this discourse now about how bad politics of wokeness are. It's also connected to people enjoying Trump's cruelty. So this, this lack of concern for the way in which things are usually done, this willingness to pay off prostitutes without caring about it, this willingness to be cruel for no sake other than being cruel. All of these things speak to somebody who is allowed to flaunt the rules. And it's that being allowed to flaunt the rules that I think is at the core of shamelessness. Now, you both have me like really excited about this idea, because on the one hand, I think you make a really good point that... It's not that they admire the things that he does specifically because they wouldn't admire it in their brothers and sisters and their moms and dads. They would think it was shameful. But on the other hand, I really think, just going on what Ammon was just saying, I think that it is that flaunting of the rules, which is precisely what shame is supposed to instill in us, an ability to follow social rules so that we are not just willy-nilly cruel to each other, that we aren't just breaking laws, that we aren't just harming each other for no good reason. I mean, that's what shame is supposed to give to us. And so I also really think that there is not a small number of people who actually admire the shameless acts and the flaunting of this shamelessness and that they would, if they could, act in the same way and would not be ashamed of it. Okay, so I don't actually think that we're as far apart as we sound right now. So let me try a different avenue. So I agree with you that what I see as shameless behavior 
in Donald Trump, other people see as admirable behavior. And how they would describe that admirable behavior is not being constrained by the social norms and the coercions of woke lib culture, right? So it is a kind of acting with disregard for the rules or impunity to the social norms of wokeness. But I think that it's those rules. It's not that he flaunts all rules. It's that he's flaunting the rules that they want flaunted. For example, if Trump next week said, you know what, it turns out that Nancy Pelosi has decided to pay me $8 million or MSNBC is going to give me my own television show as long as I do X. And at the end of the day, this is what I am. I just do what I want. I flaunt the rules. A lot of people would be like, he has no shame. Those same people for whom he is a hero right now, because he would be flaunting the rules, but the wrong rules. So I do agree with both of you. Like, I do agree with Amen that it's about the cruelty. I do agree with you that it's about the flaunting of the rules, but it's these particular rules. It's not that he's shameless. Yeah, I think we are in agreement there. But I think there's a few things to sort of still focus on there. And one has to do with something we were talking a little bit about, which is the enforcement of hierarchy. So one thing that I find really interesting and a thing that I think is important to talk about shame is that shame is not something that we distribute evenly across our society. In other words, we live in a world where we want some people to feel more shame than others. And, you know, it's been pointed out as early back as Adorno, you know, as early back as Plato. I mean, I think this is the big story of the tyrant in the Republic, to be honest, that there's a connection between what we now call troll politics and authoritarianism. Because what the troll really is upset about is that rules are being flaunted in the wrong way and by the wrong people. Right. The key to understanding the authoritarianism of Trump fans here is that they want him to be shameless, but that doesn't mean that they don't want any shame in their society. They want the right people to feel shame, and they admire Trump because he's their image of a powerful person. You know, if you ask me the question, who's the most shameless person? Yeah, it's Trump. It's also, I don't want to hark back to our friends Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, but I think shame... Here we go again. I'm not going to go too far. I think that in general, in this case, it's not a critique of those two people specifically, because I think Bill Gates is also shameless, although he hides it better. I think that shamelessness is closely connected to this idea we've touched on a couple of times of impunity. The people who, in a society, we think are above the rules, which in our society tends to correlate with access to capital... Oligarchs. And oligarchs, yeah. And celebrities. Well, yeah, and so that's, I, I mean, know, celebrity I don't culture. think celebrities, I don't, I don't think they're the same, because when we talk about the, which I'm sure we'll come back to with cancel culture, I, I think that celebrities are far, far more open to it than the wealthy. Yeah, I think their impunity is much more conditional, which is not real impunity, but there's, right. you know, there's no absolute impunity. But yeah, so anyway, I think we are in agreement, but I think that that's the crucial lens here is that we as a society want some people to be shameless. Do we admire a sociopath? Yeah. I mean, I think in a lot of ways, we live in a sociopathic society, a yeah, society think- that has made shame for its decision makers impossible. I guess I just want to know, with people like Trump and Bezos and whoever else that is above the law, the moral law, is shame ever effective? Is there anything that could be done to shame them where they would actually feel the emotion of shame and adjust their behavior accordingly? Or are we just talking about people who are just completely beyond that possibility? I mean, I think those three are beyond that possibility. I do want to talk about this question for a second because I'm not 100% committed to this position, but I'm inclined to think 
that I've made lots of changes in my own life and to my own self because I felt ashamed of something. And I consider that affect of shame and going through that experience of feeling ashamed to be positively productive. However, when other people have tried to make me feel ashamed, have tried to shame me into changing or shame me into doing something, Mm. it has almost never worked. It has almost never been productive. It's never been educational. It's never been transformative. So I do think that shame can be productive, but I think it is a terrible way to coerce another person's behavior. I mean, I totally agree with you, but how do you feel shame if there isn't another involved, right? So the idea is if somebody tries to shame Because you become the other. So I think that when I feel ashamed, like when someone else is not like, you should be ashamed, Lee Johnson, but when I genuinely feel shame, that I have doubled myself and I've stepped out of myself and looked at myself who is acting shamefully as a society that holds an ideal that I believe in would look at that person. Okay, so I think I agree with that. But I think one of the questions is, if I'm understanding Shannon's question, is what's the mechanism by which that's possible if it's not an external world? And let me give you an example. This actually touches back to Shannon's question about celebrities too some. Let's say that one of the main features of storytelling and of, of the way in which we sort of engage in what gets called mimetic behavior as a society is to allow us to inhabit the stances of other people. And presumably this is what enables the kind of doubling Lee that you're talking about. So if we live in a society where the kinds of stories that we tell center certain kinds of people, certain perspectives, certain forms of subjectivity over and over and over again, in fact, to the exclusion of any other points of view, it might be that folks who inhabit that subjectivity comfortably become incapable of any form of doubling because their point of view is always represented. Whenever Elon Musk tweets anything, 100,000 assholes tweet him back, right? (laughs) Sorry, I can't help myself. I'm shameless (laughs) about my hatred for Elon Musk. You should be ashamed. (laughs) Shame. I'm going to shame you into changing your behavior. (laughs) It's not going to work. It's not. (laughs) But the point is that it's that inability to inhabit any other subjectivity. But that's not natural, right? That's not, and it's also not unnatural. That's, that's a socially conditioned feature. So in other words, it seems to me that one of the reasons why shame might not be effective in those cases, because I agree with you, it does have to be internalized. If it's only externalized, it's not going to work. But it might be that society is set up in a way to encourage and probably make close to impossible certain forms of subjectivity to ever experience that doubling. <laughs> you a recent and I think really interestingly complex example, the Me Too movement. Mm -hmm. So I think that now a lot of people on the right would describe what happened in the Me Too movement as the public shaming of sexual predators, men, and resent it, resent what that movement was. But that forgets that originally what the Me Too movement hashtag indicated was a decision on the part of women who had been treated as if they should be ashamed for being victims, that all of these men continue to act with impunity in their sexual assaults and behaviors, and that the women should be ashamed of what happened to them. And they took this hashtag, and what the hashtag said is, I am not ashamed. Me too. I'm here. This is my name. It happened to me. Now, it's interesting that what happened there was 
actually, really, we saw this happen was the changing of the social ideal so that who gets measured against the ideal is shifting. It's harder. It's, of course, still happening, but it's harder for men to just act with impunity in their sexual behaviors towards women, sexual assaults in particular, towards women now because this change in the ideal happened. Who should be ashamed changed. I love this. I'm so glad that we're talking about this. In 1990, Sandra Bartke wrote Femininity and Domination. And one of the key points of this book, that there's sort of a chronic gender shaming of women, that they feel chronically ashamed. Uh, They feel inadequate. They feel like failures. They have diminished self-worth. And that that's part and parcel of patriarchy. Patriarchy is built upon women feeling ashamed just as part of their identities. And so with the Me Too movement, you see this push, like, remember women, this is your place. Your place is to feel shame and diminished and to feel powerless and to be embarrassed about the fact that you are doing this. Now get back in your place, get back in your lane and stay there. And what you saw, just building on what you said, Lee, is the refusal to do that the refusal to participate in patriarchal shaming. And as a result, the shift to, well, we're not going to be ashamed of this. You're going to be ashamed of this. And it did shift. It shifted the social fabric. But did any of those men feel ashamed? Did these people who were engaged in these repetitious behaviors, did they really feel shame when that shift happened? Frankly, I don't know. Maybe some did, maybe some didn't. But what I'm sure that they felt was they did not any longer feel shameless. They did not feel that they could act with impunity. And that is, I think, the operative factor here. So again, I'm not sure that I believe that you can shame someone into changing as a person. You can shame someone into changing their behaviors. You can shame them into not acting in a shameless manner, not feeling as if they can act with impunity anymore. But I don't think that you can shame someone into changing as a person. I think that's a phenomenon of that kind of doubling self-reflection. And that's why all the apologies always rang so false. Many of them did, yeah. I think, but I think that this is, I mean, I really love the way that we're talking about this and this is really helpful. And I think one thing that it points to is even if those particular men didn't feel shame, I felt ashamed and I hope a lot of men felt ashamed. And I've talked with a lot of men who had, I think some of us had honest conversations about the way in which we participated in patriarchy. And so if that changes, if that redistributes shame in any way, even if Louis C.K. ends up just being a, a shitbag, you know what? Culture moves on. This is, the re- this is the reason why it's good that we're not immortal. We'll let those objectivities <laughs> yeah. die out. And hopefully, you know, hopefully we do better. Yeah. And I'm sorry to go back to Trump again, but I do want to say that one of the things that is so unfortunate about Trump and the Trump years is that we were moving in a direction as a country where although there still were racists and sexists and homophobes everywhere, we were getting to the point where people at least understood that you should be ashamed to be that way in public. And what (laughs) Trump brought back Mm. was public shamelessness. Yeah. And it was in a move to shift the norms back to where they were before the, I don't know, <laughs> where they have always been, basically, you know, but to turn the direction around and say, no, you can act with impunity, men, white people, wealthy people, straight people, etc. You don't have to feel ashamed about this. And that is the 
I think the deeply unfortunate thing about the last four years is that we all just, because we were just inundated with it literally every day, came to accept that there are shameless people and they can be presidents. Yeah. It's not unimportant that Trump's doubling down on being a shameless public figure happened during Me Too. And I think that at least one really good thing to come out of that is that it was brought to attention, that this was no longer a hidden battle, but that this was the battle of shame and shamelessness out in front of everyone's faces. And so in that sense, I think it's at least important that it was something that people couldn't ignore or pretend that wasn't there. I do think that you're right, that it was out there and it was in the public. But while it was out there, while all this despicably shameless behavior was out there, you know what else was going on? Kids in cages. Yeah. I mean, like truly things about which we should all feel deeply, deeply ashamed. Mm -hmm. Where is the North Star anymore? Yeah. 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 It sounds to me like the three of us could agree that there is something beneficial, not just useful, but perhaps even beneficial to shame. And that it's a problem if there are people who are shameless. I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it seems like we all agree that there is some benefit to shame and that we really should, as a culture, for example, feel ashamed about kids in cages and that we let it happen and that nobody did anything to really stop it. So let's talk about the negative side of shame, because I know that this is the feeling that everyone has when they're actually feeling shame is I am broken, right? I am broken as a person. So we actually invited Krista Thomason to send in a short clip. She's recently written a book on shame. Let's take a listen to that. Hello, this is Krista Thomason. I am an associate professor of philosophy at Swarthmore College and the author of Naked, The Dark Side of Shame and Moral Life. I am recording this for the Hotel Bar Sessions. Hi, Lee. How's it going? So you guys asked me to talk about shame for approximately two minutes, which for somebody who's written a book about shame is entirely unfair because I could totally talk for a way longer period of time about that, but I'm just going to talk about it a little. So In the book, I make the argument that shame is a tension between your self-conception and your identity. And when we feel shame, when we experience episodes of shame, what we're experiencing is some feature of our identity that feels as though it overshadows our self-conception. So I think of this construction as kind of this general picture about who we are as people and who we are as people is not always up to us. Sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. So there are parts of our identities that we know they're ours, but sometimes we don't fully identify them. So one of the examples that I like to give is your social class. Sometimes people from lower class backgrounds might identify in some sense as lower class, but they don't necessarily see that as part of how they define themselves. And so when we experience shame in a case like that over our low class background, that feature of our identity is overshadowing how we see ourselves. So for me, shame is kind of like a little mini emotional identity crisis. 
And if that's right, I think we need to take really seriously questions about the extent to which we should use that emotion or try to manipulate that emotion in other people, because that's a pretty serious thing to inspire in somebody a little mini identity crisis. So this goes back to, I think, what Lee was talking about, the difference between feeling ashamed because I realize myself that I've acted in such a way. And in that sense, I feel like maybe I should have a little identity crisis. I mean, especially if I don't believe in any kind of thing like a stable ego or identity anyway, then I think we're probably always doing that anyway. And so that might be a more productive thing because I say, ooh, you know, I didn't pay Lee back that $10. I'm kind of ashamed that I, I haven't even like mentioned it to her and I'm just pretending like it's not a thing. So I really need to change that and not be the kind of person who does those sorts of things to her friends. But if Lee calls me up and says, Shannon, you should be ashamed. I gave you that $10. I can't believe you're not going to pay it back to me. And you're just going to pretend like you you never even took it. Like, what's up with you? That sense of causing the kind of identity crisis of who I am as a person seems like a purely negative kind of a thing. There's nothing productive to come out of that. All I do is feel a diminished sense of self-worth. I would really recommend to everyone her book, Naked, The Dark Side of Shame and Moral Life. I think it's got a lot of insights in much more depth than we're going into here. So I, I really want to recommend that, and we'll put a link to it in our notes. But yeah, I think this idea of identity crisis is really useful, and it does seem difficult. It seems like most of the time it would be a really bad idea. So I think that this, this urging people to be careful, right, maybe to have some shame about when we try to induce shame is really valuable. So we were talking about Me Too. Thomason was talking about class identity. And certainly these are forms of social identity, as we were talking about, that I, I would argue are problematically used as moral concepts. One thing that Thomason talks about in the book, and there's also an, an, an Eon article that, I'll, that we'll post a link to also, is the difference between moral and non-moral forms of shame. She gives the example there of beauty. If I feel like I'm not an attractive person and I feel ashamed of that, which of course is something that happens, I think that in these non-moral cases we can understand why an identity crisis, why provoking that is problematic, even though society does it all the time. But I'm not sure I'm willing to say that we should never provoke identity crises in anyone. And I know that that's a hard line. And again, like this might come back to my problem that I think we live in a pathological society. But I think that a lot, a lot of powerful people in our society need to have identity crises. I think the only problem that we face is that we're probably not going to be successful. So I don't know how effective causing that in these people who have established themselves as shameless people. I just don't know how effective it's going to be. And really, honestly, it goes back to the ideas that we started off talking about, which is that this is really about education and this is really about how we raise people. I mean, I, this may be an unpopular opinion and you may disagree with me, Ammon, because you're probably closer to the ages of that kind of use of shame for educating than I am as a parent. But... I mean, there are times when you have to tell children you should be ashamed of doing that, you know, and, and maybe not using that word, but you need to induce a feeling of shame. If they're taking people's things, if they're hitting people, if they're lying, you have to kind of induce a little mini identity crisis and say, is that the kind of person you want to be? Or do you want to be a person that makes people feel good? You know, maybe there are ways of doing that without shame. But I think that it's part of the toolkit in teaching children how to be kind rather than cruel. 
I don't know if we can do it once you've reached adulthood and you are now as such a solid identity. But there is, I think, perhaps some gentle use of it in children where you want them to question who they are and what their identity is. Yeah, I'm enough of a hippie that I am not convinced that shame has any place. I, I do think, I think the phenomenon you're talking about. But then about, you end up with shameless people. I don't I, understand. You can't sh- have it both ways. <laughs> I So I do think, what I was going to say, I agree with you that getting children to reflect on and take responsibility for their behavior is incredibly important. And so, yeah, I mean, part of it might just be terminological. If that's what we mean by shame, then yes. But I think one of the things that we do with children is we we try to work with them and we try to get them to understand, and oftentimes unsuccessfully, but try to get them to understand where they're coming from, right? So in other words, what we're trying to get them to have, back to something earlier, is to have enough self-reflection to be able to be in good faith. To be able to honestly say, well, you know what? I don't want to be this kind of person. So if I don't want to be this kind of person, why did I do X, Y, and Z? Oh, maybe I did X, Y, and Z because A, B, and C. So what I should really do is address A, B, and C. I don't necessarily see that as shaming them, but I see that as getting them to be reflective about who they are. On the other hand... I don't want to come down on the side of you should shame children. No, and I I don't want to come down on the side of that maybe causing these little mini identity crises is an important component of education. 100% agree, in part because their identities are malleable. But I think that's the crucial thing, is that children have these malleable identities. I was dealing with my children over the weekend. I was also dealing with an asshole relative over the weekend, minorly on Facebook. And this is a shameless person, is a bigot, and will always be a shameless person and a bigot. But I still think that trying to provoke an identity crisis in this person, which is absolutely what I try to do sometimes, I'm going to own that kind of behavior. Because even if it's not successful... It seems to me that when we know people, part of it is knowing people. So when we understand what their motives are, and when we understand that certain people act always in bad faith or often in bad faith, I still am a firm believer that showing them, that forcing them to confront their bad faith, even though they're going to have to be the person who chooses whether or not to do anything about it, I'm a firm believer in the case that this is relevant. And in this case, at least I got my uncle to block me on Facebook, so now I never have to interact with him again. <laughs> well done. <laughs> I sort of want to stick to my line earlier that I'm not sure there's ever a a case in which it's useful to try to shame. So I'm not a parent. I'm not going to talk about children, but with other adults that it's useful to explicitly use shame. So basically, I think that anyone to whom I would say the words, you should be ashamed of X already isn't the person who will be ashamed of X. Either doesn't understand the ideal against which their behavior should be measured Mm -hmm. or doesn't believe that their behavior is inconsistent with an ideal behavior. So that's my generic position. But I also think that what we haven't talked about is all of the ways that we commonly use shame, not in that explicit sense, not in the you should be ashamed sense, but all the kind of subtle, quotidian ways that we make people feel ashamed of their behaviors. Side I'm thinking, eye. You know, yeah, side eye. I'm thinking like, oh, you don't know what wine to order. Oh, you've never been outside of the country. Oh, you went to that school or you live in that neighborhood. In which no one ever says you should be ashamed, right? Right. But clearly that's what's happening. Yeah. And that is something that I really wish we would be more mindful of. And that is something where I think Thomason's warning is very helpful. That what you're doing there is you're provoking identity crises in people. You're not having a conversation about why it's important to be well-traveled or know a lot about wine, because then you'd have to reckon with the ideals that you're trying to impose on someone else. 
And that is something that I do think happens all the time and is really damaging. And Thomason's warning is really helpful. Yeah, I think that's right. And that is exactly what, when we were sort of talking much earlier in the episode about keeping people in their lanes. And that is exactly what that is, the constant nipping. Nope, nope, you stay right where you belong. You stay right where you're supposed to be and don't you dare go out of it. And in case you even think of doing that, there will always be constant, incessant, as I love the word quotidian, reminders that you have to stay where you are. Know your place and stay there. Totally, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, just as a confession, because we haven't really talked about any kind of personal things, but I do know that, so I am aware that I have a Southern accent. I am aware what the cultural ramifications of having a Southern accent mean. And usually that people assume that you're un- or undereducated, that you're poor and probably racist. And I'd spent a lot of time in my life trying to diminish my accent, especially in the years that I knew you when I was in graduate school, because you're already insecure in graduate school and you're trying to appear smart or sound smart. But I've realized over the years that I just don't sound like myself when I don't speak the way that I speak. But I constantly run into this in academia. People say, without saying it, right, they make subtle references to the casualness with which I speak it's just the accent. Make fun. Yeah. Make fun. Yeah. It's not just the accent, I don't think. I think there's a kind of folksy way of talking that people from the South do. But I think that that's one of those things where even though when I sit at home and have my own private thoughts, back to privacy, I think <laughs> there's nothing wrong with this. There's no reason to be ashamed. This is just part of my cultural identity. It's not something that I'm ashamed of. It still is the case that I feel this pressure. I feel this sense that I'm being shamed. I mean, I think that this gets at the thing that's so crucial here, which is our own self-reflection and our own ability to provoke identity crises in ourselves. There's so many places where we use shame in these ways that is just incredibly problematic. And as you're pointing out, in just tiny ways, in order to enforce these social hierarchies, I still really want to insist on a explicit recognition of power structures, because that to me seems to be the core problem here, right? Mm -hmm. And here's, I mean, and academia is absolutely guilty of this. And this is part of the reason why resentment over quote-unquote liberal elitism actually has some teeth. Because we are involved in hierarchical structures which replicate power, which use shame to do it, which try to make some identities appear to be better than others on grounds that if we really reflected on them, we would understand are non-moral. I think that we have to not just be egalitarian but revolutionary about this. The point is, is that we need to break those social hierarchies down. And I personally will not give up shame as a tool in order to attack the powerful. I think it is a very important tool to attack the powerful. And even if it doesn't work on them, upsetting those social hierarchies, which does involve identity crises, I think is crucial in order to highlight exactly the damaging work that shame does. I think that's such a good point. And I think that when you think about where shame is operative is in maintaining or disrupting power structures. I completely agree with you about that. I think what is interesting to think about is the way in which we say, people say this nowadays, it's acceptable to punch up, but not to punch down. But shame only works when it's punching down. It doesn't work when it's punching up because the up is shameless. And so maybe I'm becoming more persuaded at your attachment to maintaining shame as a tool in your toolkit because even if it doesn't land its punch when it's punching up, what it might do is shake the structure. That's exactly yeah. the goal. Go ahead. Yeah, and yeah. I was just going to say that... It seems to me what Me Too did. Yeah, that's what Me Too did, exactly. So that it didn't necessarily get rid of patriarchy, but it definitely made certain behaviors no longer acceptable 
in a very public manner. And it gave people who might be in a more powerless position the ability to say, I won't tolerate this position anymore. And I have now a a kind of backdrop against which to do that. Can I tell, sorry, this is going to be a kind of personal anecdote. So I made this throwaway remark about my racist uncle. Actually, over the weekend, he was transphobic. But you know, I was pushing on my uncle recently and trying to shame him. And I'm happy to admit this publicly. Precisely because he was making this kind of stupid boomer transphobic jokes that one can imagine. And I sort of pushed him on this. I did so in a way, and I was thinking specifically about my own a sense of shame that I have from things that happened when I was a kid. I remember very distinctly this same person making a lot of racist jokes when I was a kid. And I grew up in a upper middle class white family. I grew up in very white spaces. I didn't encounter a lot of people of color in my life. My parents were never racist. So I didn't encounter these stereotypes. And so when my uncle would make these sorts of jokes, they stuck with me because I didn't get them. And when I was a teenager and I started to understand the stereotypes that my uncle was playing on, I wondered why my parents didn't call him out. I wondered why my dad, who was on this hike with me, didn't call him out. He might not have heard this one, but I'm sure he's heard my uncle, who's a bigoted person, say this sort of thing a lot. One of the things that I decided as a young adult is that I was not going to tolerate that kind of familiar bigotry to be a part of my space. That, for me, was an experience of shame, even though I was just a kid and I didn't do it. And it seems to me that when we use shame against people who rely on their ability to influence others and who rely on their power and structures, even if that mark won't hit them, that is the educational mark. That is the thing that changes children. And I think that it's really important to be mindful of power structures as we do this. But I really worry that the question, you know, and I know that none of us are saying this, and I don't think Thomason is saying this, like the whole Me Too is going too far or wokeness is going too far. I worry that that push within liberal and left spaces is going to neutralize the possibility of that kind of educational or revolutionary activity. And that's what's significant about the shame, not about whether or not we individually transform people, but about the spaces that we create that people can feel comfortable in. Hey, listeners, we really do love to hear from you. So feel free to send us an audio clip with a comment or a question to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. Also check out the interactive page on our website, hotelbarpodcast.com, where we often post questions or solicit comments about future topic episodes. You may hear yourself on a future episode. So this has been a really great conversation, and I'm actually really glad we have it. I think this is maybe one of our more timely topics this season. And speaking of that, this is episode 14 of season one, and our listeners may or may not know, but we've agreed between the three of us to have 15 episode seasons. So our next episode will actually be the final episode of season one. We're going to take a quick two-week break before coming back with season two. But, I mean, how do you guys think we've done so far? I was so intimidated by the thought of doing 15 episodes, but I honestly feel like it's gone so fast. I'm always amazed at, like, just thinking back at this conversation, like, I've had my mind changed. I've had so many different thoughts. You all have just 
brought so many cool new ideas to me that I'm really excited for season two. And I want to tell our listeners that we do have a place on the website where you can submit suggestions for future episodes. And we really, really want to hear from you because we need ideas. We want to know what you all find interesting and what you don't find interesting. And I believe as Lee put on the website itself, the weirder, the better. So go for it. We want to talk about what you want to hear about. That's www.hotelbarpodcast.com. Just click on the interactive page. There's a form there. Really, send us anything, and we will definitely put it in the hat of things that we are considering. So next episode is our last episode. Ammon's getting in the hot seat for the last episode. Our last episode (laughs) is going to be called Hey Biden. We've just passed the 100 first days of Biden's presidency. And I'm hoping we can talk about what we think has been successful, what we don't think has been successful. But more importantly, we know that Uncle Joe is a big fan of the show. So we're going to pitch him our ideas. That's a bunch of malarkey. Well, hey, we couldn't get Trump on. Maybe we can get Joe on. But we're going to pitch him some ideas for things that we really hope he accomplishes in the near future. And Ammon is definitely going to shame him for some things. Oh, That's right. I suppose. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Yeah, I am too. So thanks so much for this uh, conversation, you guys. It does look like we got last call again. I am not ashamed. Uh, <laughs> you know what? This is one thing that somebody needs to tell this bartender. Because we keep coming back to this bar. It's like, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me 14 times in a row, shame on the bartender. (laughs) All right, he gave us last call again, but I will catch y'all next time. All right, check you later. (laughs) 